Father, we pray for your grace by the power of your spirit now to allow us to see how David described his own struggles in such a way that he foreshadowed what would happen to the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand how what happened to David and how what happened to Jesus is relevant for us. And we ask that you would enable us to follow in his footsteps, seeing and imitating the example that he left us. And Father, we pray that through all this, you would give us joy as we anticipate all of your promises being realized. And we pray that you would strengthen us and that you would help us to deal with all the various situations in which we find ourselves. So we bring ourselves to you, Lord, and we want to lay ourselves open and allow your word to search us and improve us, make us Christ-like, and we pray it in his name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 69, and as we come to Psalm 69, perhaps you saw in the news this last week uh, the flood that swept through Louisiana. Uh, This week I got a, a call from a pastor friend of mine down there, and he described how uh, they went to bed one night, and the water was where it normally is, and they got up the next morning, and it was chest deep in some people's homes. It it just rose so quickly. And then he described how um, he and other members of his church, basically every day this week from about 6 a.m. until about 10 p.m., have been going through people's homes and um, just cleaning everything out, throwing away furniture, Uh, knocking out drywall, everything in these homes is ruined. When water like that rises, there is no way to stop it. There is no way to get in front of it and somehow halt its progress. And where are you going to go to get above it? It's not like you can somehow remove your home to higher ground. And, And the reason I mention this is because in the opening verses of Psalm 69... David is going to use imagery that I'm pretty convinced is drawn from Noah's flood. And so, if you you would, I would invite you to look with me at Psalm 69. And in the first 12 verses of this psalm, he'll describe how he is rejected. And what he's going to do here is use imagery from the flood to talk about his own personal difficulties from human people, from from people, from real live human beings who are causing him trouble. Um, The superscription of Psalm 69 doesn't allow us to locate this at a particular point in David's life, but we know that he was persecuted early on by Saul and then later on by Absalom. Maybe there was some other incident that prompted this. But it's very interesting what David says here. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. Now, David is not dealing with literal waters. And and we're going to see that that's the case when we get down to verse 4 when he talks about those who hate him. He's talking about people, but he's depicting the trouble that he's having from these people as though 
it's the waters, and I think he has in mind Noah's flood. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. And so maybe you've found yourself in uh, water, and maybe you've realized that there's nothing holding you up, and there's nothing for you to touch on. Perhaps you can remember as a child flailing about in the water, trying to somehow get some purchase and hold yourself up, and the waters are coming up to your neck, and you begin to sink. And he continues there in verse 2, I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Um, A couple of years ago, I I had the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon with a ministry that was... um, that was making the case that the Grand Canyon was formed actually by Noah's flood. And they were talking about how if the entirety of the earth was indeed deluged with water, that water wouldn't be still. You would have these enormous currents of water, and you would have masses of sediment and rock being moved by this water. And, and this moving water is, is what David is describing here when he, when he speaks of the flood sweeping over him. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. So his, his throat is failing him. His eyes are failing him. And he feels like he's about to be submerged by the waters. And then in verse 4, he makes plain to us exactly what he's describing. He says here, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. So he's not describing a literal flood. What he seems to be doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I think this is really important, what he seems to be doing is picking up imagery from the flood of Noah and using that imagery to, to, to describe what is happening to him as a result of human enemies. More in number than the hairs of my head. Um, We've been listening to uh, this new musical called Hamilton, an American musical in our house. And there's a point where George Washington says to Alexander Hamilton, we are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. And that's, that's how David feels here. He is outnumbered. And these are people who hate him without cause. He goes on to say there in verse 4, Mighty are those who would destroy me. Okay, now let's just get this straight. They have no grounds for accusation against him. They have no complaints, no just complaints, that he has oppressed the people or that he has somehow rendered himself disqualified from being king. They just hate him. They hate him with an implacable hatred. A hatred that is not going to change. They want him destroyed. He, he speaks there at the end of verse 4, those who attack me with lies. And then, and then I think this line, what I did not steal, must I now restore? I think that the, the idea is, I have not done the wrongs of which they accuse me, and yet they want me to, me to somehow make restitution for those wrongs. And he's just summarizing this. I think we can learn from what David does here. Um, First, uh, let me me say a word about the flood and about um, the way that this imagery seems to be developed across the Bible. And I would invite you to just keep a finger here at Psalm 69 
and look over at Psalm 124. I think this is a really interesting development because in Psalm 69, it's David personally using flood imagery to describe difficulty from human beings. But in Psalm 124, he says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. So it goes from being him personally now to the nation in Psalm 124. And you see the same kind of imagery of the floodwaters being a way to describe the enemies of God attacking the people of God. You see that in Isaiah chapter 8. You see it in Daniel 9. You see it in Daniel 11. A a number of places. And I'm inclined to think that these floodwaters are behind Jesus describing him being crucified as a baptism. If you remember that over in places like Mark 10, he says um, to his disciples, they want to they want to sit on the thrones on his right and his left. And he says to them, are you able to drink the cup that, I, that I'm about to drink? And he's clearly talking about the cup of God's wrath when he dies on the cross. And then he says, or are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to undergo? So the, the baptism, I think Jesus is talking about his experience of being submerged in the floodwaters of God's wrath. And I would suggest he's using He's using the floodwaters the same way that David is using the floodwaters because Jesus is not going to be immersed in floodwaters either, is he? He's going to be handed over to enemies who are going to put him to death. And then I think that also informs what Peter says about how uh, the, the flood of Noah corresponds to baptism by which we are saved. It's, it's our faith in Christ that unites us to him and his experience of the baptism in the floodwaters of God's wrath, so that no wrath remains for us. So that's the first thing I would say that, that we can learn. It's, it's, it's taking us into the meaning of baptism. Uh, it's an experience of God's wrath. Um, second thing I would say we can learn. David is not doing some kind of superficial um, glossing over of his difficulties, is he? David is being realistic about his situation and about how difficult it is. And and I think that we can learn from this that it's okay to be a really spiritual person who is walking with God and to find that life is really hard. You know, I think sometimes in in our circles, we can can begin to fear, well, if I'm godly, I'm not going to suffer. That's not the case with David, is it? And it's certainly not the case with Jesus. So let me just give you permission, if you need it, to be realistic about your difficulties. I'm not saying you ought to complain all the time. I'm not saying you ought to be a whiner. I am saying um, don't act like everything's okay when everything's not okay. Everything's not okay with David. Be realistic about your situation. Now, what's, there's something, interest, something else that's interesting. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this psalm, I think. Something else that's interesting here is that on the one hand, David is saying that these enemies hate him without cause there in verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. On the other hand, he's not claiming to be perfectly pure and innocent and altogether righteous. Look at verse 5. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. 
David is confessing his sins to God. But he seems to be saying, and I think this is entirely possible, you know what a sinner I am, but my sins are not why they hate me. So I'm not, he's not perfectly righteous, but these people's accusations are groundless. So, So David is confessing his sins to God, and he shows here profound love for the Lord and for the people of God in verse 6. He says in verse 6, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. This is, this is David saying, I'm not the point. I don't matter. What matters to me is the welfare of the people of God. And I'm a sinner. I'm confessing and acknowledging my sin. Lord, Don't make it so that my sin brings shame and reproach on your people. He continues there in verse 6. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. David is more concerned about other people than he is about himself, even as he deals with his sin. This is godliness. and, and, And this is also the pathway to holiness. The pathway to holiness, we're all sinners. We are all going to continue to stumble in many ways. But if we remain supremely concerned about ourselves, we will not begin to make those arduous steps up the path toward progressive sanctification. But if we become more concerned about other people than about ourselves, that's going to weaken the the appeals that temptation makes to us. So David is, is concerned about other people, and then in verse 7, he's concerned about God. It is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. Now, this is, this is complicated by the circumstances that David is describing and by the situation of David's own life. Let's say, for instance, that this is after uh, David's sin with Bathsheba. On the one hand, you've got people, I think, who have... Who, who have the right to feel indignation toward David because of his sin. On the other hand, you've got people that are just opposed to him and his kingdom. They, they hate God, and they hate God's king, David. And, and, and I think that David is trying to sort out this situation, and he's recognizing there are these people over here who, verse 4, they hate me without cause. Verse 5, then I've got these awful sins that are not hidden from you. And, and then he's concerned for the reputation of God's people and their standing in verse 6. And I th- what, what's the logic, what's the connection between him confessing sin in verse 5 and then saying to God, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach? Couldn't we say to David, no, it's because of what you did that you're bearing reproach? How do we, how do we put this together? As I thought about this, here's, here's what I arrived at. I think that David could have attempted to keep his sin hidden, and he didn't for some reason. And ultimately, I think the reason he's saying he allowed this to become public knowledge, as in, you know, not continuing in a purge of, of people who knew about it, not slaughtering Nathan like he had killed Uriah, not... Uh, purging anybody that, that whispered or gossiped about this. No, he didn't do that. Why didn't he do that? Ultimately, I think because he feared God. So the fear of God stopped David from trying to keep the knowledge of what he had done tamped down. 
And, and then it became public, and he publicly confessed. Nathan confronts him, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. So he doesn't hide it. He confesses it, and then he lets the story be told to other people. And that results in reproach coming on him. So I think what David is saying is, because of my experience of you, Lord, I have borne reproach because I didn't hide my sin. I confessed it. I let the word of it circulate. And dishonor has covered my face. And then in verses 7 through 12, he's going to describe the way that he's alienated. And I think that the alienation is probably going back to these people who hate him without cause back in verse 4. He says here in verse 8, I've become a stranger to my brothers. Then he's going to repeat that a, a different way in the next line, an alien to my mother's sons. And in, in David's world, I don't think you could find a more extreme form of rejection. These are the people that are supposed to stand uh, allied to David no matter what. His brothers, his kinship group, his family, these are the people that are supposed to stand with him and, and protect him from enemies and make his, his way in life easier. And they treat him now like a stranger, an alien. He's being ostracized by those to whom he's closest. And then in verse 9, he explains this alienation. He says, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Now, again, I think there's a, a connection here. David's zeal for the temple and his concern for godliness resulted in him confessing sin, resulted in him doing things that would lead ultimately to his son Solomon building the temple, and that's what he gave his life to. And that has resulted in shame on him personally because his sin became public, and it's resulted in his brothers and, and mother's sons, apparently who have different priorities, ultimately ostracizing and rejecting him so that David can say there in verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So again, David is getting at the way that these people who speak ill of God, they speak evil words about God, are now directing their evil comments toward David, who's the visible representation of God. Both parts of Psalm 69.9 are quoted in the New Testament. When Jesus cleanses the temple in John chapter 2, um, the disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. And, and I think it's an appropriate use of, of Psalm 69 verse 9 because what's happening is the way that David lived is being reenacted in the way that Jesus lived. And just as David's concern for God's house resulted in him being rejected, Jesus' concern for God's house is resulting in him being rejected. And there's a lot more we could say about John 2, but I'm just going to leave that there because I want to talk about the next part of verse 9 where David says, The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Paul quotes this over in Romans 15. And he, and he quotes it, again, I think, in keeping with what Psalm 69 means. And what Paul is saying is uh, that, that the reproaches of those who have rejected Jesus are now fall, falling on, on Christ. And, and Paul, again, just as, just as John does, is saying that the pattern lived out in David's life was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Uh, David continues here in Psalm 69, verse 10. 
when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. So David is grieved before the Lord. He's weeping. He's fasting. And these people are just piling on. They're just using his public manifestation of repentance as more evidence against him. He says in verse 11, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Look at David. This is what happens to people that pursue godliness. Look at David. This is what happens to people like him. So so he becomes like a proverb among the people because of the way that he's living. And then in verse 12, uh, people who are elevated in society, the elders who sit in the gate, uh, I am the talk of those who sit in the gate. Um, You remember at the end of Proverbs 31, uh, the husband of this noble woman, he takes his place among the elders of the land in the gate. This is where the esteemed and respected people sit. And those people are talking against David. And then in in the rest of verse 12, the drunkards make songs about me, the lowlifes in society. They're also mocking him. A couple of of ways that we can uh, imitate... um, the example of Jesus, who is imitating the example of David. One, we need to recognize that there are people who hate God, and they will hate us without cause. And and we just need to uh, acknowledge that reality and be prepared to deal with it. Um, Not everybody's going to like us, and it's not always because we're in the wrong. There are people, Jesus said, he said, um, if they hated me, they will hate you also. And if they kept my word, they will keep your word. We need to recognize that there are people who hated David without cause, not because he was guilty, not because of something that he had done. They just hated him. And there are people that hated Jesus without cause. Ultimately, it's because they hate God. And they're going to hate us too. We just need to be realistic about that. We also, also, as as we saw there in verses 6 and 7, We need to care more about God and God's people than about ourselves, even as we deal with our sin. If if we care most about ourselves, we will never confess our sin. And if we never confess our sin, we will never get better. We will never grow. We will never take steps toward overcoming these things that are haunting us. But if we care most about God and God's people, we will confess our sin and it will be dealt with. So the rejected king, verses 1 through 12, calls on the Lord, verses 13 through 21. This too is instructive. In the midst of his difficulty, what's David doing? He's praying. Verse 13, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God. Um, This acceptable time, this is a time of God's favor. This is language that indicates that there is a, there's a time of favor. There's an acceptable time, and we should be seeking the Lord now in the time of favor. At the acceptable time, David says, At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. So what's David appealing to? Once again, David is appealing to the character of God. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. He's just picked up two words, uh, steadfast love and faithfulness from God's self-declaration in in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. A God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So David is appealing to what the Lord said about himself. 
and, he, and he's, he's praying to the Lord, not making deals with God, not appealing to his own righteousness. He's appealing to God's character. Verse 14, deliver me from sinking in the mire. In verses 14 and 15, all that language back from verse 2 about the flood is going to be resumed here in verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Uh, so David is praying that, that these manifestations of God's wrath would not ultimately swamp him and kill him. I think that's why he's using the, the flood. He knows he's a sinner, verse 5, and, so, and he knows that he's bearing reproach for God's sake, verse 7, and so at some level, these enemies who hate him without, God, without cause are God's discipline against him. And that's why he's appealing to God to remove it. So God is disciplining David through these enemies who hate him without cause. And David is appealing to the Lord to deliver him from these enemies. And the urgency of his prayer can be seen in the way he repeatedly cries out in verses six, verse, verse 13, answer me. Verse 16, answer me. Verse 17, at the end of the verse, answer me. He's calling out to the Lord. Verse 16, he repeats these appeals to God's character. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. David here is modeling for us how to deal with situations of, of crisis and with, with situations where we don't have the resources to overcome what we're facing. And even if we're not in a flood, even if we're not the king of a nation um, facing implacable enemies, we are all going to find ourselves in situations where we do not have the resources to overcome what we're facing. And we need to follow the example of David. We need to appeal to the character of this, this faithful, loving God who relates to his people as a father. In verse 19, what David does is he appeals to God's concern and God's sympathy. He says to the Lord in verse 19, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor my foes are all known to you. What David is, is, is assuming here, that, he, that is left unstated, but it's there in what he says, what he's assuming is that God cares about this. God does not want David to be reproached and dishonored and opposed by these enemies. So David is saying, look, you know all this that I'm facing. Verse 20, reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. Here he's appealing to God's sympathy for him personally. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. David is calling out to the Lord, and he's saying, I'm alone here. I'm alone, I'm rejected, and this is not the way you want it to be. And then in verse 21, there's this, this summary statement of, of how, uh, how bad it has gotten to be for David. He says, they gave me poison 
for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. This is another line from this psalm that, that typifies what would happen with Jesus. This, this is referenced every time uh, the gospel accounts, and all four gospel accounts note that they gave sour wine to Jesus to drink. So this, this pattern of events in David's life, is, it's like it's being repeated in the life of Jesus, and it's as though Psalm 69 is, is a, a go-to psalm for the authors of the New Testament to illustrate the way that Jesus is fulfilling this pattern that was set forth in the life of David. A couple of points of application from verses 13 through 21. Number one, trust God's character. David gets into these situations of difficulty, and he doesn't doubt. He he doesn't question whether or not God loves him. He doesn't question whether or not God is faithful. He trusts that God is loving kind and that God is a faithful God. That's the first thing. The second thing, I was noting a minute ago how David is appealing to God to save him from God's own judgment. David trusts God's mercy to save him from God's judgment, and we should do the same. For those who turn from their sin and to Christ, God saves them in his mercy from his judgment. And I would urge you to do that. If you're here this morning and you're not somebody who's identifying as a Christian, what we're urging you to do is to recognize that God's judgment is over you. We want you to have the same experience that that David had where he realized, I can't hide my sin. I can't avoid the consequences of my sin. The only thing for me to do is acknowledge this and confess it and then bear its reproach. But if you'll do that, if you'll acknowledge and confess and turn from your sin, and look to the God who saves. God in his mercy will save you from his own justice. In verses 22 through the end, we see that the rejected king is calling on the Lord for vindication. And the specific form of vindication that he wants is for God's judgment to come on his enemies. Um, this is one of those passages, passages Psalm 69, 22 through 28, that, that is referred to as an imprecatory section of the Psalms. What David is doing is calling down God's curses on his enemies. Why is he doing this? He's doing this because it is unjust for the enemies of God to enjoy the blessings of God. The enemies of God should not enjoy the blessings of God. And so what David is doing is saying, Lord, restore equilibrium here. Make things right. Take this wrong situation where my enemies, who are your enemies, are enjoying your blessings and make it right where your enemies, who are my enemies, are enjoying your curses. Now, David doesn't come out and say here, of course, if they repent and join our side, remove the curses from them, but I think that's implied. Repentance, for these people that David is about to pray against, repentance would take the form of them ceasing their opposition of David and joining those who support David. But if they're not going to do that, they should not enjoy God's blessings. They should have God's curses, and David is on board with what should be. So verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. 
as I thought about this verse, how would a table become a snare and their peace become a trap? Well, you know, often people that are opposed to God, if, if you're not going to be faithful to God, you're not going to be faithful to other people. And often these circles are very, they're, they're rife with suspicion and they're, 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 they're often replete with um, assassination attempts. And I think David may have in mind, let these scoundrels poison each other. Let their table become a, a, a snare. When they sit down to eat, let them unexpectedly be trying to get one up on, on each other and let them kill each other through these assassination attempts. Verse 23, he, he speaks to their health. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. The enjoyment of sight and and a stable body that works as it should, that's a blessing of God. It's a blessing of God that those who set themselves up as, as rebels against God don't deserve. So David doesn't want their food to sustain them. He wants it to kill them. David doesn't want their health to continue. He wants it to end. Verse 24, this is, this is an explicit statement. These, these other statements are sort of getting around the issue where he's saying, Lord, let your wrath fall on them. Here he says it right out, verse 24. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. And they don't deserve to, to enjoy community either. They don't deserve to to continue to enjoy stable, healthy, thriving relationships with other people. So verse 25, may their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Why? Verse 26, for they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those you have wounded. It's interesting here. David is the one who's been struck down under God's discipline. And, and here again, what happens in David's own personal life also happens at the life of the nation. You know, I talked earlier about how David is using the flood to talk about his own personal difficulties, and then he'll, he'll later use the flood to talk about the nation's difficulties. You get the same sort of dynamic where um, um, Assyria and Babylon are spoken of as tools that the Lord is going to use to discipline the nation of Israel. And then the Lord is going to turn and, and judge Assyria and Babylon. Well, here... Uh, David's enemies, it's like he's saying, these are your tools to discipline me and then turn and, discip- and, and, and judge the tools. Sa- same sort of uh, dynamic at work between David and, th- and the nation. They don't deserve to have their sins forgiven because they haven't repented and because they don't trust God. Look at verse 27. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acqu- acquittal from you. David is simply saying, don't let the unrepentant get away with it. Establish justice. And then verse 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. And again, I would say this all assumes their ongoing unrepentance. If they were to repent, all of this would be lifted. But if they don't repent... David is just praying that God would do what he's, what he's already said he's going to do, right? Dave, God has already made it clear that the unrepentant will not be enrolled among the righteous. The unrepentant will not have their sins forgiven. God has already said that. David is simply saying, Lord, what you have said about yourself, 
bring it to bear in my situation. Make it be this way. And then in contrast with the wicked that he prays about in verses 22 through 28, he again appeals to the Lord for his concern for him personally in verse 29 and following. He says, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I think he's got that flood imagery in mind. The floodwaters are rising. I've got no place to stand. Let your salvation set me on high. And if the Lord will do that for him, verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. So there's praise and thanks there in verse 30. And David knows that that's better than sacrifice, verse 31. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. David knows what we saw in Psalm 50 when we were there some weeks back. It's not that God needs to be fed by these animals. And it's not that God just likes to see bloody animals all over the altar. No, what the Lord wants is he wants to show his mercy to repentant sinners. And then he wants those sinners to respond to him in praise and thanks. And that's what David is is acknowledging here in verses 30 and 31. And then he says, when the humble see it, the people who are aligned with David, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Um, I think other translations render this line. um, Let the hearts of those who seek God live. There's going to be life for those who see what has happened in David's life. Those who see that this man who repented of his sins and experienced God's mercy, they see that, they understand it, and their hearts have life. And then there's the fulfillment of that same pattern, or the, or the pattern of, of, not the sinning part, but the pattern of David's experience of persecution and, and, and rejection and, and his experience of God's loving kindness. That's all going to be fulfilled in Christ. Verse 33. This beautiful statement. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. As I thought about this, I thought about another instance or another episode in this, um, this story of Alexander Hamilton's life. Um, at one point in, in his life, his 19-year-old son had acted very foolishly, and he had challenged a man to a duel. And he was shot, and he was dying. And I think that the way that uh, Alexander Hamilton and his wife Eliza respond to their foolish son illustrates for us the way that God responds to his foolish people, right? We, we often do stupid stuff that... that, that we, we don't deserve to live after we've, done the, after we've committed the folly and the sin that we've committed. But Alexander Hamilton and his wife Eliza, they just wanted their son to live. They wanted him to survive, and they wanted to do anything they could to help this boy stay alive. And I think we should, we should sense, as if, I would encourage you to experience this musical. It's glorious. It's, it's really moving. I think we should sense the love of God for sinners, the love of God for his children. When we've done something foolish, we should not think. Now, there is, there is a sense in which God, we do displease him, but overruling that, 
we should feel my father loves me and my father wants me to get better. So I should go to him for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. And then this psalm concludes, uh, Psalm 69, 34 through 36. It concludes with these statements that link everything that's happened in this psalm to the, the broader hope of the Old Testament. Verse 34, let heaven and earth praise him. That's what everything exists for. So this, this, this ultimate final purpose of God is articulated here. God's intention in creation was to make it so that all the world would sing his praise. The seas and everything that moves in them. And then God set out to accomplish this by establishing his, his king, the son of David, in Zion, on his in his holy temple, verse 36, verse 35, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. And that language of possessing the, the land of Judah, this is language that's familiar from the book of Joshua where and Deuteronomy, where they're going to possess the land of Canaan. So I think this is looking forward to a new conquest of a new and better land, a new heaven and new earth. Verse 36 the offspring of his servants, the offspring, that's the word seed, the seed of the woman, ultimately, the offspring of his servants shall inherit the land. That word inherit, this is what they did with the land that they possessed. They possessed the land of Canaan in the conquest, and then they, they, uh, they passed it down through their generations as, as generation after generation inherited it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the way the world was meant to be. The world was meant to be inhabited by people that love God's name. And this psalm is saying that's the way the world is going to end. So let me give you three points of application from this final section, verses 22 through 36 here. I think we should pray that God's enemies would not unjustly enjoy God's blessings. And I think we should pray this hoping that their experience of God's discipline would lead them to repentance. So, so if they're not going to repent, Lord, visit the final curse on them. But don't let them get away with their sin and impunity between now and then. Bring your discipline. Remove your blessing. Lead them to repentance. That's what David is doing in verses 22 through 28. Second, I would urge you, to commit Psalm 69, verse 33, to memory, and behold the tender mercy of the living God. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. I suspect that if any of us is ever locked up for something to do with Christianity, we will, there will be something in our minds that nags at us that says, well, I could have conducted myself better. I could have been more blameless. At some level, I deserve this. But God doesn't despise his own people who are prisoners. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. We need the tender mercy of the living God to always be swimming around our ears. And then finally, hope in God's promises. That's what David's doing in verses 34 through 36. He is hoping that God would finally and ultimately do what he has said he will do. Let's pray. Father, in the floodwaters of Psalm 69, 
and in David's zeal for the temple and in the reproaches that fell upon him, in the sour wine that his enemies gave him to drink, and in the camp of those who betrayed him that became desolate. We have these these points of contact with our Lord Jesus who who was baptized in the floodwaters of your wrath, who had a zeal for your house that caused him to cleanse the temple, that caused him to be consumed for your people, who experienced the reproaches of those who hate you, who drank sour wine, whose enemy's camp became a desolation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the meaning of the Scriptures and to learn from this passage to confess our sin, to bear reproach, to worship Jesus, to hope in your promises, and to be people marked by your tender mercy. Father, we pray that you would do this in ways that, that words can't communicate. Lord, we love you, and we want to be your people And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.